Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So Ezekiel chapter 37, this is one of the more uh, well-known chapters from the book of Ezekiel. Um, you've probably read it before. If not, you've probably heard the song, you know, Dem Bones or whatever, <laughs> Dem Dry Bones. Um, this is the chapter that deals with the Valley of Dry Bones. And, uh, uh, you know, there's different ways that people, Christians, have interpreted this chapter. The first, of course, is the literal uh, interpretation that this is speaking about Israel and the land of Israel, and that this a prophecy is a is a literal has a literal fulfillment. Um, others take this and they make it a spiritual interpretation, and they say, "Well, this is this applies to the church um, or the resurrection from the dead." And and uh, my take on this is that it may have symbolism, and it may have application for the church. And the rep and uh, and also for the resurrection of the dead, but I believe that uh, this is a literal prophecy regarding the literal nation of Israel and the land of Israel. You know, once you start spiritualizing scriptures, uh, you know, pretty soon to make everything fit, you have to start doing scriptural um, gymnastics, and uh, it's much easier to just take the Bible prophecies. Um, literally at face value, and just let the Bible speak for itself. That's what I try to do as much as possible, and, and then let the Bible pr- pretty much you know, be its own commentary. And uh, as a matter of fact, the Bible here does provide its own uh, commentary on the interpretation. Verse 11, it says, These bones are the whole house of Israel. So I cheated, and I looked ahead, and like, oh, okay. So that's what, it, that's what we're speaking about. So with that, let's look at verse 1. It says, the hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. So here Ezekiel is either physically transported to a literal valley or this is a vision. We don't know. But um, anyways, he's there in this valley and he looks around him and he sees it's just like, you know, after a battlefield years later or not years later. But, you know, there's there's skeletal bones all over the place, scattered all around, and they're dry. So in other words, they've been there for a while, um, and there's, they're dead. There's, there's, like, there's no life there. It's, it's be like you know, coming into a place, it's probably silent. You can probably hear the wind blowing, you know, and maybe you hear a couple vultures flying around, or maybe the vultures are already gone because there's nothing to pick off the bones. It's just, it's just desolate. And so that's what um, Ezekiel sees there in this valley. Everywhere he turns, there's death. All around him. Verse 3. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, Oh Lord God, you know. You know, from Ezekiel's viewpoint, put yourself in Ezekiel's boots or his sandals. And, and, and put yourself there. You're looking around at this, this, all this death and all this dead bones, dry bones. And God says, Hey, do you think these things can live? Now, uh, you know, Ezekiel... From his viewpoint, the answer, probably the natural answer, would probably be no. Um, but, you know, he's seen enough visions and he's prophesied enough. 
I got a feeling if I was Ezekiel, people would be like, this is a trick question, (laughs) you know? Um, So he goes with the safe answer. He doesn't ask for a lifeline. He just says, oh, Lord God, you know. Um, Very safe. You know, the apostle Philip faced a very similar situation in in John's gospel. Uh, The record of the uh, feeding of the 5,000. Jesus, after he had fed the 5,000, or excuse me, before he fed the 5,000, he went up on this, this, on this mountain with his disciples. It was overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And all these multitudes are following the disciples and following Jesus up there. So it's a little bit more out of the city. It's a kind of a desolate place. And it says there in John chapter 6, verse 5, it says, Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Shall we buy bread? Oh, excuse me, where shall we buy bread that we may that these may eat? But then it says, but this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. It's like a trick question. Hey, how are we going to feed all these people? Well, Jesus was planning on doing it. But you see, it was a test for Philip. And, uh, you know, I think sometimes God allows you and I to face a hopeless situation from a human standpoint. And it's not because he's being cruel and he's neglecting us or whatever. But I think he wants to get us to a place where he asks us the question, hey, do you think we can do anything about this? And I think it's in order to reveal his glory when he changes a hopeless situation. And it's also to strengthen our faith in him so that we no longer trust in ourselves, but we trust in God. You know, he'll put us in a situation where there's nothing that you can do about it. Physically, you know, there's nothing that you can do in your own strength. It's like, this is hopeless. And God's like, yeah, you're right, it is, but not with me. All things are possible with me. And so I think God's trying to do that. And I think God's not only in this chapter proclaiming to Ezekiel what he's going to do so that Ezekiel can pass us on to uh, the children of Israel, but I think he's also doing a work in Ezekiel himself. And he wants Ezekiel to grow in his faith. And so verse 4 says, And again he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. I look at if I started every message that way. <laughs> I won't. Uh, you guys would probably throw tomatoes at me. But So again he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones. Surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So Ezekiel here is told to prophesy and to speak to the dry bones. You know, when you hear the word prophecy or prophesying, in most cases, or in many cases, prophecy is predictive. It's, you know, foretelling future events. And the Bible tells us, you know, how do you determine if there's a false prophet or a true prophet? Well, if they foretell a a future event and it doesn't happen, they're a false prophet. Go out and stone them. (laughs) So be careful what you say. (laughs) Um, That's, you know, predictive But in this case, it's not predictive, although this is a prophecy. Um, God is telling Ezekiel to speak, to prophesy to the bones. And so in this case, it's not predictive, but God's, it's basically speaking forth God's words. And so I would say it's forth telling, not foretelling, but forth telling, where you're speaking 
on behalf of God to someone else. And I think that's a really a picture of the gift of prophecy that the Holy Spirit gives in the New Testament. It can be either foretelling, which you know is definitely a part of it, you know, foretelling future events under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, or it can be also foretelling a word of, from the Lord to His people, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I think it's both. And so here, Ezekiel is being told to speak God's Word, God's creative Word, to those dry bones. Verse 7, So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise, and suddenly a rattling And the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. Can you imagine just seeing that? All of a sudden, you know, there's this rattling noise, and these bones just start, you know, the the foot bone connects to the ankle bone, and the ankle bone connects to the shin bone, and well, whatever, you know. And and this this these people are basically forming, and then all of a sudden you see the 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 muscles and the you know the whole uh, sinews and all that stuff, the joints and the ligaments. All of a sudden they start forming on these bones, and pretty soon you have this fully assembled person or a multitude of people in front of you. That would that would be kind of freaky. Um, but notice that there's two phases to this event. First of all, these 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 bones they all assemble and stuff, and, and it looks like a you know a living human person, but there's no life in them. They're assembled, but they're not alive at this point, anyways. You know that's very similar to the story of creation in Genesis 2-7. When the Lord God created Adam, it says, and the Lord God took, excuse me, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. You know, God formed Adam from, from dirt, basically, formed him together, and there's this fully formed human being, but he wasn't alive until God breathed his spirit into him. And when God did that, Adam became a living being. And so this first phase of this prophecy, or this first phase of this event, there's these assembled people, this army, this multitude, but they're not alive yet. Verse 9, Also he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come uh, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. And so now there's the second phase of this event. Now they're made alive. So God has Ezekiel prophesy to the wind to breathe life into these life, this lifeless multitude, and now they're alive. You know what's interesting in this chapter? The words breath, the word wind, and the word spirit, they're all the same Hebrew word. It's the word ruach. <laughs> I don't know if that's how they pronounce it, but you get the idea. It's, it's a sound of breath. In my case, probably bad breath, but no. Um, it's, uh, uh, you know, this, the Greek word, excuse me, the Hebrew word ruach. Well, in John chapter 3, verse 8, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. And there in that verse, it says, the wind, he said, the wind blows where it wishes, 
and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And in that verse, both wind and spirit, it's also the same Greek word, which is pneuma. That's what we speak of the Spirit. And uh, so I just think it's interesting that... that uh, you know, we're talking about wind, we're talking about breath, but we're also talking about the Spirit. It's also interesting that in the end of the book, in Revelation chapter 11, remember when the two witnesses, they're in Jerusalem during the tribulation, and they're speaking forth God's words to the people around them, and the people around them don't want to hear it, so they finally they kill them. And then they celebrate basically for three and a half days. But in Revelation eleven eleven it says, Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. I mean, they're dead for three and a half days, and all of a sudden, boom, God breathes on them, and they're alive again. And so now here in verse 11, God tells Ezekiel and us the interpretation of this vision. Verse 11, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. So there you have it basically from God himself, his own commentary. This is speaking of Israel. And like I said, there's certainly symbolism and application if you want to apply it to the church or apply it to the resurrection from the dead it definitely there's symbolism there and there's the application there but this is literally about Israel and so here you know you think of it Ezekiel speaking to the to the captives that are now they've been exiled to Jerusalem he's heard news that Jerusalem's been destroyed and and the the rest of the captives are there with him in Babylon and uh, those people are probably feeling cut off from God. And they're probably feeling that they're without hope. But later, after 70 A.D., when Jerusalem's destroyed by Titus Vespasian, for almost two millennia, almost 2,000 years, the Jewish people scattered all over the nations. No doubt they probably felt cut off from God and without hope. You know, the Holocaust, which is, you know, we, when I say the Holocaust, we all know what we're talking about. You know, we, we understand that, and, and that was a horrific event that occurred to the Jewish people. But that's not the first time that they were persecuted. They've been persecuted for 2,000 years, wherever they were. Um, the Holocaust was not the first persecution of the Jewish people, but it was certainly one of the main ones, and it was a very large one, a very, very, you know, impacting one. Can you imagine during World War II, being a Jew living in Europe, and, and the Nazis are steadily taking over country after country after country, and, and they're coming into your country, you're a Jewish person, you've heard what's been going on. Can you imagine how you would feel during that time? The, uh, the utter hopelessness? I mean, where can you go? There's nowhere to go. All Europe is being controlled by, pretty much all Europe is starting to be controlled by the Nazis. They probably felt hopelessness, and then, of course, going into the death camps. I mean, it's like we're cut off. There's no hope. Suddenly, after 2,000 years, God speaks, and there's a noise and a rattling, and the bones are resurrected from their graves and assembled into bodies once more. You know, the first phase of this prophecy was fulfilled on May 14th, 1948. The noise, what was the noise that was heard? Well, I think 
It was the worldwide news of the death camps. You know, the people in Germany, they, they kind of they knew what was going on. But, you know, at the end of the war, the Allies, they made the people that lived in the cities around the, the different camps, they made them go. They had to go and tour the camps to see what was going on basically in their backyard because they had pretty much, you know, kind of turned a blind eye to what was going on all around them. And so they forced them to do it. And, and the world finally got a glimpse of, of what the, the horrific things that were occurring in those death camps. And for that moment in history, worldwide sympathy was turned towards the Jewish people. Worldwide sympathy. There was a tiny window of opportunity, and it was opened just long enough for the Jews to return to Palestine and establish the sovereign nation of Israel. It was a small window. That window's closed. World sympathy is not towards the Jewish people anymore. But God spoke. After 2,000 years, God said, okay, breathe, you know, come alive. And the Jewish people, coming back in there. But just as Ezekiel's vision of the dry bones had two phases, so also the fulfillment of this prophecy is occurring in two phases. The first phase, 1948, May 14th, 1948, the nation of Israel, out of, out of the ashes, 2,000 years, now all of a sudden they're coming, they're coming, the bones are coming alive, they're coming back, and there's a great multitude coming back into the land of Israel. And you see, just like the bones in, vision, in Ezekiel's vision were assembled and looked alive, and yet they weren't alive, the Jewish nation has been assembled. I mean, after all, they look alive, right? I mean, they've got their own culture, They've got their own government. They've got their own money. Uh, they've got their own language. They, they have a flag and a prime minister. I mean, they look alive, but the nation of Israel is spiritually dead. Verse 12, Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. Like those scattered dry bones in the vision, the nation of Israel was scattered literally throughout all the nations, and they were spiritually dead in their graves among all the nations. And now phase two is described. Verse 14, I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. Verse 14, I think, is yet to be fulfilled. Um, but it will be fulfilled, like Paul says in Romans eleven twenty six, when all Israel is saved. When is that going to occur? We haven't got to Zechariah yet. But when we get to Zechariah chapter 12, Verse 10, we find out that it's at the end of the tribulation when Jesus Christ returns with his saints at the battle of Armageddon. The Jews that are alive at that time, they're going to look on him whom they pierced and they're going to mourn for him. The nation, the people that are alive, the Jewish people that are alive at that time, they're going to see Jesus Christ returning and they're going to recognize him as their savior and they're going to repent and they're going to turn their hearts to the Lord, and all Israel will be saved, as Paul says in, in Romans 11. You know, it's interesting. When we went to, some of us went to Israel. Uh, maybe you've been to Israel before, I don't know. But um, 
this verse, verse 14 of Ezekiel, it's inscribed over a large concrete arch at the entrance of Yad Vashem. Yad Vashem is the Holocaust Museum. If you ever go to Israel, go there. I mean, it's it's a it's disturbing in some senses because it's 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 you know it's a, it's an ugly thing to see. Not the museum, but I mean, what occurred, what's memorialized there. But it's very poignant, and uh, and I, I just still remember walking in there and seeing that scripture verse right over the archway as you as you enter into from the parking lot. I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. They're spiritually dead at this point. They don't believe Jesus is the Messiah nationally. I mean, there's individuals there that, that have turned their, you know, their lives to Jesus Christ. They believe he's the Savior. And there's a lot of ministries um, to the Jews for that. But nationally, on a national level, they're spiritually dead. Now it's interesting that Benjamin Netanyahu, the the you know the prime minister, he actually does Bible studies in his home. People that come and they they study the ten the old the new uh, excuse me the Old Testament. They don't study the New Testament. They study the Old Testament, and uh, I think it's really cool. Um, you know, I pray at some day that the Lord just opens his eyes to uh, to the truth of the Scriptures, and that he sees Jesus. Um, but at this point. Nationally, they're spiritually dead. So now we get to verse 15. And from verse 15 through the end of the chapter, Ezekiel is told to give another one of those visual lessons or visual messages to the people. You know, he's done that throughout his ministry, right? He's laid on his side. He's built a little clay thing of Jerusalem and played with that out in front of his yard there and, uh, you know, as a symbol. And he's, he's done all kinds of things as a symbol, as, as a visual lesson or visual message to the people. And now he's told to do the same thing again. So verse 15, it says, Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, As for you, son of man, take a stick for yourself and write on it for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. Then join them one to another for yourself into one stick. They will become one in your hand. What he's talking about, the nation of Israel, you know, it was one nation uh, through the reign of King David and even through the reign of King David's son Solomon. But when Solomon died, his son Rehoboam, basically, he just, he, you know, the kingdom was basically taken from him. There was a civil war that occurred during Rehoboam's reign, and the kingdom was split into two nations or two kingdoms. And these two sticks... Um, one of the sticks written with an inscription representing Ephraim. Ephraim is another name for the nation or the kingdom of Israel, the ten northern tribes. They went into captivity, uh, into Assyrian captivity in 722 B.C. And then this other stick representing Judah, it's basically the two southern tribes of the, the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. They went into, just recently as, as Ezekiel's read, you know, alive, they went into Babylon captivity basically starting in 605 B.C. until uh, 586 B.C. It was that whole period of time where there was a few different phases of Jews going into captivity. Notice back in verse 11, however, when God says he's going to bring them back into the land, notice he says, 
He's going to bring back the whole nation of Israel. You know, and I know some people have some different theories about different countries and stuff, but I see no scriptural basis for the ten lost tribes of Israel theory. Because God says here, I'm bringing back the whole nation of Israel into the land of Israel. Verse 18, And when the children of your people speak to you, saying, Will you not show us what you mean by these? Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will join them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand. And the sticks on which you write will be one in your hand before their eyes. Then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land, and I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. We'll stop right there. So, although there's no record of the Jews that went into Assyrian captivity, there's no historical record of them being released from captivity because Assyria was absorbed into the Babylonian Empire when they came into control. God says plainly that all the whole nation of Israel is going to be brought back into the land. So I don't think there's any ten lost tribes of Israel. I think they're all there. We don't know who they are. They probably don't know who they are, but God knows who they are. Notice that God does not instruct Ezekiel in this passage we just read to give the meaning of the symbolism until he's asked by the people. I think that's interesting. Proverbs 25.2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out a matter. It's God's glory to hide things, but He wants us to search things out. And notice who asks Him. It's the children that ask him. First Peter two twenty two verses two, Peter writes this as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. I want to encourage you this morning to hunger for God's word. Ask the Lord, man, Lord, give me a just a, a love for your word, a desire to be in your word. And to eagerly come to the Lord as children, right? Think of how a child comes to their parents. You know, they 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 don't know, and so they're asking because they they want to they want to absorb as much knowledge as they can. Kids are very inquisitive, and so they're like, "Teach me," you know, and they're like sponges. Those of you that you know teach kids like nursery or Sunday school or elementary school. I mean, kids are sponges. You can you can just form them, and and uh, we need to be praying for our kids for this generation because there's a lot of bad stuff that's being poured into them right now, a lot of evil, a lot of a lot of a lot of bad teaching and stuff. But kids are sponges. God wants you and I to be that way when it comes to His Word. Man, be a sponge. Just Lord, teach me. I want to I want to learn from Your Word. And maybe you don't understand something. It's like just pray about it and dig into it, and God will reveal things to you. He wants you to search Him out. He'll reveal things to you. God, the Bible says God's a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. So looking back now, verse 22, the second half there, verse, it says, And one king shall be over them all, and they shall no longer be two nations, nor they shall, shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. 
They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them. Then they shall be my people, and I will be their God. This is not going to be fulfilled for Israel nationally until the millennium. However, that same event can, and it's been occurring occurring for 2,000 years, and it's still occurring today, and it can occur today in the lives of people. Those who, you know, they, they confess their sins, they repent of them or turn away from them, and then they put their faith in Christ. At that point, you know, God makes you their people, His people. You know, He, he fills you with your spirit, His spirit. I'm getting this on <laughs> getting tongue twisted here, but he cleanses us from our unrighteousness and he, and he gives us his spirit and, and he gives us hope and he, and, he, and he fills us. That can happen today. Verse 24, David, my servant, shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Now, you go throughout the Bible, and we know that the one shepherd is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that he's going to personally and physically reign in Jerusalem during the, during the millennium. But what about King David here? Is this speaking about the King David? Or is this a reference to Jesus, who's, of course, of the house of David or of the lineage of David? That's a good question. And... You know, I don't think it's like a make-or-break thing with the Scriptures, but it's a question. You know, is David physically going to reign in Jerusalem, as it's saying here? You know, as I was thinking about that, I always I keep thinking about this one passage of Scripture, and it's in the New Testament. And after Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, remember he was transformed before Peter, James, and John, and then he came down from the mountain. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 9, it says, Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you, Elijah has already come. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. And then it says this. It says, Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. John the Baptist came in the spirit and in the ministry in the, you know, the, uh, of Elijah, the prophet. And, and Jesus is saying, you know, John the Baptist was Elijah. So likewise, when I look at this passage of Scripture, this may be referring to Jesus as David, since he is the son of David. However, and we haven't got to Daniel yet, but in Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, it seems to indicate that the Old Testament saints will be resurrected for the millennium age. And they'll be, living, they'll be dwelling there in Israel. And, and, and if that's the case... Uh, it's quite possible that literally David will reign sort of like a vice shepherd <laughs> under the authority of the one shepherd, Jesus Christ. You know, I, I don't really know the answer to that. Um, I tend to think that this is speaking of Jesus and not David himself. But, you know, it's certainly not a doctrinal issue. And, and uh, I reserve the right to change my stance on this in the future. But 
something to think about. It's funny when we get through Daniel chapter, you know, we get through Daniel, I might have a totally different take on this. I don't think so, but <laughs> who knows? Verse 25. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt, and they shall dwell there, they and their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. You know, here it's speaking of the land, specifically. And God had promised the land to Jacob many thousands of years ago. And after 2,000 years, when the Jews were you know, kicked out of the land, basically, God kept his word to return them to the land God promised Jacob. But it took 2,000 years. You know, God's timing is definitely not our timing. I mean, how would you like to wait for God to fulfill a promise to you for 2,000 years? Well, you won't be around for 2,000 years. You're on the earth. But, you know, God's timing is, is not our timing. It's, it's usually not our timing. But God is faithful. And God will complete what He's promised you. How long have you been waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled in your life? Can I encourage you? Don't lose hope. Don't feel like you're cut off. Because at the right time... God's going to declare His Word, and whatever it is, it's going to be fulfilled. God's faithful. Verse 26, Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God and they shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. I'm not going to get into this too much, but in a few more chapters, in Ezekiel 40 through 48, there's this description of this temple, and it's going to exist in Jerusalem during the millennium. You know what's fascinating about that? Well, I don't want to spill the beans, but there's going to be sacrifices taking place in the temple during the millennium. And you go, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought Jesus is the Lamb of God. Who was, the, the, it's not going to be, won't be the Day of Atonement. It won't be the sacrifice for sin. But there's going to be the Feast of Tabernacles. And, and uh, that, that'll be occurring. We'll get to it when we get to chapter 40. I don't want to get into it too much, but... Fascinating when you start looking into this. You know, looking at this chapter, you and I are God's people. And I know sometimes we can feel pretty hopeless in situations. And sometimes we can despair of what's going on in our lives or what's, you know, whatever's going on. But you know that for you and I as God's people, we should never despair. And it's true we go th- you know we get bummed out or we get we get you know we get fearful or things happen anxious but you and I should never despair because despair basically it really is a form of unbelief in God's unlimited power because we serve a God nothing's impossible with him and so we we should never despair now I know that we go through some difficult things and I know that sometimes it's like Lord God it seems like it seems like this is insurmountable and and it's it's like it's been going on forever is this ever going to change God's faithful God's able to bring life to that which is dead maybe there's something in your life that you feel like man there's there's no hope this is never going to change 
It's hopeless. Well, I can tell you it's not hopeless. God's in control. God's able to bring back to life that which is dead, and He brings hope to the hopeless. How do you like that for a Palm Sunday message? <laughs> Today is Palm Sunday, right? Um, yep. You know this church that uh, when uh, the church that I met Teresa in and we got married up in Duluth, the pastor there on Palm Sunday, um, we we bring in palm branches and we give us all palm branches and we go kind of around the block around the church and it was a little older church like this and you know doing our worship songs walking around the palm branches and he was very. Uh, Liturgical, he came from the Episcopal Episcopalian Church. He was, you know, came out of that, I guess, as a pastor, and uh, so he had a lot of lot of traditional things that you just did, you know. And so it was kind of interesting. I'd never done that before, but we're not going to do that this morning. Um, I didn't bring any palm branches, but you know, if you think about that, what occurred on Palm Sunday, and you guys know the story, right? Jesus, um, you know, they they from the Mount of Olives, he basically walked into Jerusalem on a donkey, right, on the foal of a donkey. And as he's coming in, the people are worshiping, you know, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and they started laying palm branches down. Basically, they were laying them down in front of him. It's kind of like making a little road for him to walk across as he's, as he's coming towards Jerusalem. And basically, they were prophetically or symbolically preparing the way for the Lord, preparing for the way for the Lord to come into Jerusalem. Isaiah 40, verse 3, it says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You know, I believe... The regathering of Israel was one of those palm branches symbolically that was laid down as, as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. It's just one of the things, one of the stepping stones that we see prophetically happening in preparation of Christ's return to the earth. You know, I see a lot of things occurring today that seem to be setting the stage for the return of Jesus Christ. I mean, you look at what's going on in the news, and, you know, next chapters, a couple chapters, we'll be talking about what I believe is a prophecy concerning Russia. And you look at the news, and, and you, you look at it, what, what Putin's doing, and you go, wow, you know, I, I could see him doing what the Bible says he's going to do, or somebody's going to do. may not be him, but I think it might be. Um, and, and it, it, I think it's fascinating. You know, if you were a Christian a hundred years ago, and you were reading all this stuff here, you know, people a hundred years ago. If, if you go to the commentaries on a lot of these, a lot of these end time prophecies regarding Israel, you, you go to the commentaries, and I don't blame them. But a lot of times they basically say this must ha- this must be speaking about the church. Because Israel wasn't a nation. And so they go, well, it, it can't be speaking about Israel because there is no Israel. So it, it must be speaking about the church. And so if you start looking at some commentaries, you'll get some kind of some, some wacky ideas. But it's not their fault. They're going based on what they understand. But you and I, man, we have been, we have been chosen to be alive in this time to see the things that we're seeing, which I think is fascinating and, and it's exciting 
Um, and, you know, we can get despairing, you know, oh, look, our liberties are going away and we're seeing a one world kind of moving to a one world government and a false religion. You know, yeah, that's bad. I mean, I, I don't like that. But, man, it's exciting because, man, Jesus is coming back. I see lots of things, and I think each thing that we see is like another palm branch going in the way. Israel's a nation, you know, and pretty soon there's going to be something else. And it's like, man, Christ is coming back soon. And so don't despair when you see these things. The Bible says instead, look up, for your redemption draws near. So I think for you and I as, as believers, this is the, probably the one most exciting time to be alive. Maybe the first century Christians, I was, I'm sure that was exciting too to see the church just forming and everything. But for th- how many thousands of years, things didn't happen the way they're happening now, and they're happening fast, and they're happening just as God's Word says it's going to happen. And so I think it's an exciting time. And so just as we see the nations and we see the world, that God's setting the stage, preparing the way for the King of Kings to enter into Jerusalem, as you and I see these things, man, I think, man, we need to prepare our hearts. We need to make a, a, a straight path for the Lord in our hearts. And we need to start focusing on eternal things. And focus